0: So the title of today's message is Humility Brings a Greater Grace. And just to forewarn you, we will be looking at a lot of scripture today. So if you have your Bibles out or your electronic devices, however you want to follow along, we're going to be examining a lot of scripture today. Some of it we're going to be reading verbatim, some of it I'm going to summarize just for the sake of time. So let's begin this morning because we're going to be going through so much scripture within the message. We're going to just start out with asking the Lord's blessing upon our efforts this morning. Father, we just bring this time to you and I ask, Father, that you would open up our hearts to hear the word of God preached, that you would use it as a scalpel to cut out those areas of our lives that the enemy has tried to place in there to distract us away from you that you would use it as a healing balm to bring wholeness to areas that have been stripped away by the the hardships of life. And I would ask father that you bring healing to us as we understand the importance of grace and humility in that grace. Father God, I ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Now if you're here last week we had a, a whole list of things that go along with grace, and we tied those intricately together. And it was a pretty expansive list of spiritual attributes that are pleasing to God, and they help us express His character and help us express His nature to the world. This week we're going to be focusing on one of those spiritual attributes as it works in and through grace. We're going to explore that connection between God's grace and humility, along with the greatest enemy of God's grace, which is human pride. There was once a boy who attended a Christian school. In second grade, they were doing character studies of spirit-filled Christians, and one of the things they were focusing on in this study is humility. So this boy studied really hard, and he, he worked really hard in writing a report and setting up um, like a diorama of of humility in action. And the school had a contest and he won first prize for all of his work in humility. Well, they had a chapel service and when they were handing out the awards, he walked up to get the award from the principal for for having the best example of humility. And the principal handed it down to him and as he reached it up, he pulled it back and said, well, he can't have it because you're not being humble by accepting it. That's just a funny little story. It was meant to be humorous. But it shows some of the conflicting ideas that we have about what it means to be humble. So let's look at God's word. The Apostle Peter and James both quote the Old Testament in their epistles when they say that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's notable that two of God's chosen leaders in the early church spoke about the subject using the same scripture. Here are a few questions to consider about grace and how it works with humility. Where do we get our ideas about what it means to be humble? Why is this important when you tie it in with grace? What does it mean to God's grace and how does our humility affect that? The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble. If we take that as a biblical truth, and we should, it's plainly said in the Bible, How can I eagerly pursue his best for me without falling into mere self interest, doing something that is only for my benefit and not God's? Well, the first thing we look at is that the Bible tells us that God gives grace. God giving grace is one of the Bible's central messages, it's what God does. But does God give grace as a wave? Is God's grace like a a mighty tsunami that we've seen pictures of where it's like a, a big tidal wave that comes in and washes over everyone? Or is it more of a targeted stream like your garden holes when you're out there spraying your flowers? This verse gives us the answer. God gives grace to certain kinds of people. Humble people. It tells us that God can withhold grace from another kind of people the proud people. Three times, Scripture reminds us of this fact. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says that in Proverbs three thirty four, James 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, verse 5. If you see something like that repeated throughout Scripture, it shows that God considers this to be very important. It means that there's a link between humility and grace. When the father sees his children willing to take the low place in the family... He pours out a special portion of grace to strengthen us, to help us to serve one another. Humility draws the blessing and favor of God. The same one who stripped down to the waist and served the the other disciples, or, or I'm sorry, washed the feet of his disciples, will rejoice when we learn to be humble and serve one another. Jesus was the model for our humility. On four separate occasions, Jesus employs this phrase, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And these passages are not just simple repetition caused by the gospel writers retelling the same story because each passage is unique. Four times Jesus lays out this challenge, humble yourself and then by grace God will exalt you. Well, how does this work? For time's sake, this is one of those areas that I've summarized these four scriptures, but I encourage you to write them down and look them up and read them on your own. The first scripture is this, Matthew 18, verse 1 through 4. Jesus says to lay aside dreams of greatness and embrace dreams of dependency upon God. That is the highway to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, Among men there is none greater than John the Baptist, yet the person who is least In the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Living in the kingdom requires God's intervention each and every day. It requires his grace to be within our lives. But we cannot make the kingdom happen, we can only proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. And then depend on him to invade the ordinary with his present and presence and power and make it the extraordinary that we see with his graces is being manifest in our lives. The second example in the Gospels is found in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Jesus tells us to lay aside the thrill of recognition and find the joy in serving. If we are honest, We'll recognize ourselves in the people that Jesus describes. Most of us strive for recognition. You see it in the way people dress. You see it with what they're driving. You see it, the titles that they hold. Meanwhile, the servants come and go in the midst of all the clamor of, of, of people trying to elevate themselves, quietly attending the master's business. Those are the people who experience. God's grace in its fullness. I remember once I had a, a gentleman at my church. He was just incredibly faithful in being a greeter and an usher. He could be on death's door, and he would still be standing there on Sunday morning to open the door and and make sure that people were seated and and doing the duties of an usher. And he would, he would, he would he would uh He's one of these guys, well, you're the pastor, you are like the apple of God's eye and all that. And I I told him, Abel, I guarantee you when we get to heaven, your place will be higher than mine. The man was just so faithful and such a gentle heart that he really had that idea of God's grace coming through humility. The third example is this, Luke 14, 7-14. Which tells us to lay aside the thirst for honor from others and seek to honor others instead. In fact, Jesus tells us to honor those who cannot repay us. There will come a day when the reward will come. But it is not here and now, it is later. The, question, the imposed or implied question here is, can we delay gratification? Or do all of our selfish desires seek to be satisfied in the here and now? And the final example you see in the Gospels is in Luke 18, 9-14, which says to lay aside self-assessment and depend on God's mercy. Jesus draws a picture of two men in prayer. The first man begins his prayer with a, a quick thank you. But then goes on to thank God that he's not like all these other scum that are around him. He's not like those tax collectors. He's not like those sinners. He's not like all these other people that that are around him. This is a man that's been keeping score and reminds God that he's the spiritual winner here and that God should be pleased that he is in that church. The other man starts with God's mercy instead of self-assessment. The thing about measuring sticks, when we put them out toward others, is eventually we're going to be asked to stand next to it. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we can be like a mean older brother. There's two kids in a, in a car, an older brother and a younger brother. They're both going to the state fair. And they're talking about how excited they are to ride these rides. And all the way there, the, the, the mean older brother is telling them, well, you're not going to be able to ride the rides anyway because you're too small. You're too short. You're going to watch me ride all these rides. Ha, 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 ha. I'm going to have fun and you're not. You're going to be sitting there watching me. And they get to this fair and they run up to the rides and they stand up next to the height thing and both of them are too short to ride most of the rides. Sometimes we're like that. Jesus said that the same measure that we extend toward others is the same measure that is going to be extended toward us. And we often talk about, or often talk during Sunday school and occasionally on Wednesday nights, about how bad our elected officials are getting and how bad the country is getting. Imagine for a moment if we had a president who was doing the following. Imagine a man or woman who is practicing open witchcraft and seances in the White House. Imagine them inviting fortune-telling and necromancy in. Necromancy is talking to the dead. Imagine this president engaged in human sacrifice by burning his own children on altars of fire. And because... Like it or not, the president, whoever he or she is, has nationwide authority and influence. And so they not only practice these things, they encourage others and teach others how to do it themselves. Anybody who, would, who is a Christian who has any moral base found in the Bible at all would be crying to God to remove this man out of authority, wouldn't they? Now envision... This man who has done and encouraged others to do the deepest evil that humans can do, finding a way to win God's affection. Buried deep in the Bible, in the Chronicles of Israel, the parts of the Bible that we generally skim over, is a story of a man just like that, a despicable king who did all of these things. Yet he captured the Father's grace, he captured the Father's mercy by humbling himself before God. His name was Manasseh, and you can read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. In the space of one chapter, King Manasseh was transformed from a man who provoked God to anger to one who caught God's attention because of his humble heart. And there is a lesson here for every student of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus, all you who want to follow after him. It is not that Manasseh simply experienced God's mercy. He actually provoked God's mercy. How did he do this? How did he provoke this mercy and grace? He humbled himself. It was through humility. You see, people intuitively hunger for mercy or humility in their spiritual and political leaders. This last week, we heard a lot of of disgust over the Democratic debates, and it wouldn't have mattered if it was Democratic or Republican, it would have been the same thing. The news media was focused on who got the best lines, who got the best zingers, who got the best insults. They weren't really looking at policies, they weren't really looking at at plans, they just wanted to get the, the salacious stuff right out there in front of them. And so the insults kept flying. They mocked each other's plans and proposals. They mocked each other's character. They belittled everyone else in an effort to elevate themselves on that stage. But they're only reflecting that which is already in our culture, aren't they? Self-promotion and pride are just epidemic in our world today. Humility however, is the opposite. Humility is a sail that captures the winds of God's grace and mercy. God's ear is tuned to the humble heart. And today we're going to see that in the example of King Manasseh. This is a story who did every, of a man who did everything possible to shove a stick in the eyes of God and blaspheming anything having to do with him. With his story, we learn that we can find that there's hope for anyone who has wandered, and that God can forgive anyone who will come to him with a humble heart. I'm going to do a quick summarization of some highlights in this story, but I encourage you, again, to read the whole chapter when you have a chance, because there are Four sure lessons from Manasseh seen in Second Chronicles chapter 33 for those who are chasing after the heart of God. The first lesson is this. Even in the midst of gross iniquity, gross evil, God is speaking. In verse 10 of 2 Chronicles 33, it says, that The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Even after this long list of horrific and rebellious acts against God, the text reveals that God was still reaching out to Manasseh. God was still trying to draw him back into the fold, draw him back into the faith, draw him back into relationship with with him. Sometimes within the the Pentecostal church or the the holiness movement, we sometimes have been told that God hides from our sin, that God, if you sin, that God is nowhere near us. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Our sin is one of the very reasons God continues to reach out for us. Now, I'm not saying the sin that grace should increase, but God always continues to reach out for us, even in the midst of our own stupidity sometimes. He loves us. He refuses to give up on us. But it's not just his love that reaches down, it's a humble heart that reaches up that he is attracted to. And that brings us to the second lesson, is that God knows how to humble us. In verse 11, it says that, So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. You know, there's a massive difference between being humbled by the Almighty God and humbling yourself before Him. God prefers that you humble yourself before Him, but if it's necessary, He'll do the humbling. And you won't like it. It's kind of like when you were growing up. If you dropped your mom's vase and it shattered all over the floor, you were better off just going and confessing it to your mother than kind of walking away, closing the door and letting her find it. It's the same way with God. If you just confess your sins before him, he is anxious to forgive your sin and to forgive you from all unrighteousness. But if you try to hide it, if you try to to push it off on someone else, then he is going to bring that humbling before you and it's going to be a lot worse. The third lesson is that our hearts can move God's heart. In verse 13 of 2 Chronicles 11, it says, And when Manasseh prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his prayer and listened to his plea, so that he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. That's incredible. If you consider everything this man had done, witchcraft, idol worship, child sacrifice, sexual sin that would have made Hugh Hefner blush. God still forgave him and still restored this man. You see, God's not moved by the things that move us. He's not moved by wealth and wisdom, positions of power, but he's moved by finding humility in our hearts. When a man or woman chooses contrition, The Father tells all of heaven to be quiet so he can hear that slight prayer coming from us. And our prayers are never more powerful when we choose humility and take our proper place before him. The fourth lesson from Manasseh is our humble example can influence the generations to come. Verse 25. Then the people of the land killed all those who had plotted against King Ammon, and they made Josiah his son king in his place. See, it was almost too late for his son. His son had seen all the wickedness his father had done. His son had seen the repentance, but by then his son had chosen the wrong way, and he only reigned a couple years. But Manasseh was able to affect his grandson. Josiah. This child at eight years old sparked a nationwide revival. I like to imagine that Josiah heard firsthand from his grandfather the horrors of rebellion and the grace of humility. Our life lessons can become the seed that springs up 30, 60, and 100 fold in the lives of those who follow us. They are more than just interesting Old Testament stories. These were recorded for us to, cont- to test the condition of our hearts. They're the measuring rod that we hold up to ourselves and see why we also need God's grace to measure up. And he, but even more than Manasseh, Jesus modeled our way of humility. Jesus embodied that life of humility before the Father. Paul describes the Jesus way, the humble way, in Philippians chapter 2. And relationships with one another have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used of his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What was witnessed in the Old, or whispered in the Old Testament is now shouted in the New Testament. Humility is the doorway into God's kingdom. Many believers are surprised to learn that there is something we can all do to bring God's grace into our lives. And it's simply to humble ourselves. But the opposite is also true. In mathematics, in order to prove something true, you have to balance both sides of the equation. So let's balance that equation. If humility can bring God's grace, what can bring God's anger? Pride. Pride blocks the grace of God. This means that among the enemies of grace, human pride is hides deepest in our spirits. It's because God's grace meets us in our weakness, we think grace will expose us as frauds, when all the while grace flows even stronger toward the humble in heart. One of the ways as believers that we can step across the border from truth and enter into arrogance is to think of those who cannot see the truth as fools, that we look upon those who are not saved and think that well they're just less than me. Spiritual pride is and was all the tr- the root of all sin ever committed. I mean think about it. Spiritual pride is the root of every sin. Every single sin that we can commit starts there because it starts with us saying we know better than God. And it's so easy to fall into and before we know it we've crossed into the enemy's territory grace understands that merely knowing the truth is not enough along with our knowledge we need to be a grace-filled people the problem with knowing a lot is a tendency toward judgment god even said that in proverbs with one, with much knowledge comes sorrow the apostle paul was one of the most highly educated men ever to live one of the greatest minds ever to exist in humanity And when he said that knowledge puffs up. Sometimes, and I see this, I work in the medical field, and I see this especially among specialist doctors, that I always joke that sometimes they know so much, they have to cram so much into that human brain that something had to go and it's usually personality. And sometimes we can think that we know so much about the spiritual that we appear uncaring and cold about it. It's like an oncologist who diagnoses a cancer and misses the fact that this is a human being they're talking to. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, you have cancer. Let me check my Facebook real quick. Okay, yeah, you have cancer. Uh, You have six months to live. Anything else you need to know? That's kind of how sometimes we can present the, the gospel when we have pride built up within us. But this kind of pride was the same kind of leaven that the Pharisees had, that same kind of, of bitterness within their spirit. Pride's the enemy of grace. You can't give grace to people you look down upon, you can only give them pity. Another way we show pride is to utter modest things about ourselves that we don't believe. The problem with false humility is, is just that it's false. False humility is self-abasement that we want others to reject so we affirm our own talent or skill. I catch myself doing this sometimes. Using self-deprecation to reaffirm my self-worth. Well, C.S. Lewis helps us to guard against false humility. He said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself at all. Pride harms us deeply, but humility given by God's grace heals us utterly. And that's why God resists the proud. We should be the kind of people who who humble ourselves so that we can experience God's grace in all of its measure. Today I would invite you just to take inventory of your heart. The humble heart paves the way for a greater grace, and a prideful heart does the opposite. Which one describes your heart? Holy Spirit, I would just ask that you search us and know us this morning. We know, Father, that one of the deepest pains that we can have, one of the the things that will allow pride to come into our hearts the most is when others hurt us. Some of, some of us may be carrying an ought against another person, a, a grudge against another person for years, decades even. I ask, Father, that you just set that per, those people free from that in Jesus' name this morning. That just as you have forgiven us for many transgressions, that we will forgive them and set our own hearts free. The thing about holding on to grudge is a grudge is a weight you tie around your own neck, not the person you don't like. Let us take that chain off this morning and experience the freedom of the Lord. Father, I would ask, Lord, that you would make us a people who are humble and walk humbly before this world, that we would show the Father, heart of God, and the love of Jesus Christ through how we live, how we speak, and how we interact with those who don't know you yet. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you, Father. Let us show grace to this world through the humility of Jesus Christ working in our hearts and living within us. Father, I thank you. And I ask this in Jesus' name.